Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. So today I get to introduce Chuck Davis. He's going to come on up. Chuck is going to be preaching today uh, and I am thrilled to have Chuck here. Um, Hard, actually, for me to explain how excited I am that Chuck is uh, preaching. I read his book, The Bold uh, Christian, uh, oh boy, maybe eight, nine years ago, um, maybe a little, maybe six years ago, can't remember. Anyways, fantastic book, it's for sale at the back, talk to Mike at the information desk. Once he, he speaks, uh, you'll be like, yeah, I need to get this book, it's going to be fantastic. But it really uh, changed my ministry um, and kind of changed my perspective on things, so that's why I'm so delighted that you're here, Chuck. I just... Yeah, you've been like a far away kind of mentor type of thing. So I know of you. You You didn't know me. I knew you. Um, So anyways, let me pray for Chuck, and he's going to, uh, to bring the message today. Heavenly Father, thank you that Chuck is here. Uh, thank you for Ingrid and uh, her ministry that, uh, that she had yesterday and for the work that you did through her. Today, Lord, as we bring Chuck before you, I ask that you would anoint him with, um, with your power and your presence. I pray that as he speaks, um, our hearts and our minds would receive what you have prepared for us to receive. And uh, Lord, I know that there are things in our lives that can cause a blockage uh, that we don't hear what you are wanting to say to us. And so I pray in this space today, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us, that, uh, that we would hear, that we would receive from you all that you have prepared uh, Chuck to speak. So we ask the Lord for your anointing on him, and uh, we trust that you will do uh, what you want to do in our lives today. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. I had the privilege of doing PhD studies at Fordham University, and this was a time when my kids were going into university, and I was pastoring a church, and I was a adjunct professor, so when I crossed the finish line, I was more relieved than celebratory. But this graduation celebration was fantastic. Uh, Fordham is a Jesuit university. They have a beautiful commons. We were prated before everyone, and then they took us to this large stone cathedral, as PhD students. On the way in, they pinned an owl on us uh, that was supposed to be part of the celebration. Kind of like this poppy that I have pinned on, a pin goes through it and you hook a a little clip on the back. Uh, They announced our dissertations and they put a hood on you and all these fantastic things. And the academic dean got up and she started into this speech. And she said, on the way in, we pinned you with this owl. This is the goddess Sophia. You now have a wisdom that is better than any other wisdom to go out and take into the world. And I said under my breath, in Jesus' name, the only wisdom I take is Jesus. And my pin shot across the stage. On the way out, my son, who has spiritual discernment, he was in his mid-20s, said, Hey, Dad, what was that owl stuff that was going on there? And we compared notes of what had happened. Basically, I took my spiritual authority against an unintended curse that was being spoken over me. Now, if we're honest, we are, as Pastor told you last week, uh, we are people who have been steeped in the age of reason. We're enlightenment people, we're secularists, and we try to find a natural explanation for that. 
Um, I would love to think that my workouts were going so well at that time that all I had to do was pop my chest and that thing would shoot across there. But I can guarantee you that's not what happened. And you say, well, why do you think we might have a naturalistic response to it? In the church that I pastored at the time, uh, I told this story during one of my sermons, and a woman who had been healed in the church, she had a degenerative eye uh, disease, she was losing her sight, and was in serious trouble, and we prayed for her, and she was healed. So she experienced the power of God, but she came up to me after the sermon, and she said, Pastor Chuck, I love you, but did that really happen? See, she had experienced the power of God, but only so far. Five minutes later, another man came up to me. He had been healed of pancreatic cancer. Those of you who know medical world, that when you have the announcement pancreatic cancer over you, usually that's the end of the line. He was prayed for and he was healed on the spot. Crazy story. This guy later had brain cancer and lung cancer, and he used medical process to be healed of those, but he was healed on the spot. He came up to me and he said, Pastor Chuck, did that really happen? You see, there's a secular response in us. We say we believe the Bible, but when we get to the more difficult parts of the Bible, we say, well, that was ancient ways of thinking. C.S. Lewis has said this, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every moment is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And we, the Christ followers, are given the task of partnering with God to take back that which really belongs to God. And the way we do that is operating in spiritual authority. So this morning, I want to take us into a passage where Jesus sets the tone for the ministry of the church for the rest of time. Luke chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to look at it. Something about Hannah, if you prefer to look on your apparatus, you can do that as well. Oh, it's right here for you as well. So do whatever is the most comfortable for you. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And then skipping to the 17th verse. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Holy Spirit, would you speak a word to us now? I need to disappear so that Jesus would be seen. Would you anoint my mind and my heart and my lips to take us where we need to go and anoint all of our hearts and do what only you can do, Holy Spirit. Take one word spoken and apply it to all of us in the way that we need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We set some context of this passage. Luke's a brilliant writer. 
He's the only non-Jew that's used by God with the Holy Spirit hovering over him to give us uh, scripture. All the rest are written by Hebrew authors. He was a medical doctor and he was a scholar. And he's written these two uh, pieces for us, one a gospel and one the advancement of the church. I wish I had just like an hour to talk about how amazing Luke is. The way he designs it is fantastic. The turning point in Luke is chapter 9 and verse 51 where it says, and Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Uh, Luke, even though he's Gentile, uses step parallelism. Every passage on each side of that matches one another. It's brilliant. It's incredible. But the whole aspect is that Jesus is getting to Jerusalem. He repeats that phrase multiple times in the next couple chapters. Acts is about getting Jesus out of Jerusalem. You use this as your benediction every week. You know Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And the way Luke ties in the end of his gospel to the beginning of Acts, he's basically saying, I want you to see that Jesus did some amazing things, but the Jesus stuff continues. It continues through his body, you, that exist on this earth. He remains the head, but he operates. And in this passage, we see how Jesus does this. Verse 1, he sends them out. Jesus is the sent one. He's the first apostle. He's the first boundary crosser. Think of all the boundaries that Jesus crossed to bring his love of God and the good news to us. And Jesus turns around and he says to his followers, in the same way that I was sent and I've come to you, you are now my ambassadors, I'm sending you out. We see how important the harvest is. He says, the harvest is plentiful, excuse me, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Uh, The church is the only institution that exists primarily for its not yet members. The minute we become a holy huddle, we're in a dangerous space. Jesus calls us together to get strength and to be encouraged because he's concerned about the people that aren't in here. And he wants us to find new life and abundant life, but he wants us to be passing it on. And the harvest is very important to Jesus. Jesus weeps over his city because they're separated from him. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 2, or verse 3. Go your way, behold, I'm sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. It's going to be difficult. Uh, I don't know if it's happened in Canada, but in America, we sold a cheap gospel for a number of years. We basically said, come to Jesus and your life will go really well. I have a different message. Come to Jesus and it's going to get really difficult. Do you remember what Jesus said? In the world, you're going to have all kinds of troubles. It's really a lot easier from a natural perspective, to be a pagan in the world. Because the world is going in the direction that you're going. But the minute you become a Christ follower, you are in hostile territory. It's occupied by an enemy. Verses 4 through 8, I would just summarize. I'm not going to go through all the aspects because they don't all apply completely to us. But what Jesus was saying is trust God when you go. He already has it lined up for you. Don't worry about the provision. Don't worry about where you're going to stay. I will give you peace that you can pass on to others, and then when they return it to you, you be engaged in their world. And then he shows them his way to do it. Verse 9, 
Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. If you watch Jesus' life and what he passes on to his disciples, the very things that he did, Jesus had a threefold ministry. He announced the kingdom, he healed the sick, and he cast out demons. It's that quite simple. In the previous chapter, in chapter 9, he sends the 12 out, and he says to them, when you go, announce the kingdom, heal the sick, and cast out demons. And now he's saying to the 72, so Jesus is expanding it out to other followers, not just the 12 apostles that are around him. He says to them, as you go, uh, announce that the kingdom of God is near you, heal the sick. Well, where's the demonic thing? We jump down to verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, I want you to get into the picture of this, if you can kind of get your imagination. These 72 go out for their first short missions trip. They come back, and they are so excited. They're like little kids jumping up and down. You're not going to believe this, Jesus. We healed people in your name, and we spoke to demons, and even the demons responded to us in your name. And how does Jesus respond? He's kind of nonchalant. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This could have either been from heaven when Lucifer was cast out of there originally, or maybe Jesus was seeing into the Palestinian areas where Satan was falling because they were going in mission. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus is like, yeah, so what? I gave you my authority. Now, there's a very distinction, great distinction in the two words used here. Authority is the word exousia in Greek. The word power is dunamis, where we get our word dynamite. Authority, spiritual authority, is always greater than power. You see, in the world in which we live, it tries to move with left-handed power. But as Christians, as Christ followers, when we go into the world, we come with servant authority that transforms everything before us. Power may try to do things against us, but authority is greater than power. Um, I was going to do this at the end, but let me just do it now. This is the illustration that really helped me make the distinction between power and authority. Uh, we moved to Greenwich, Connecticut in 2007, where I was going to pastor a church. Uh, the town still has traffic officers. I don't know if you have those in Canada. You know, the people who wear a white glove and they blow their whistle and the cars stop and they control. Um, one day I was walking down the street and I looked and there were no cars coming. And he was there, but I thought, you know, no cars are coming. So I just walked across the street. All of a sudden he started blowing his whistle. He goes, hey! He's pointing me to go back. And he made me stand on the corner for about five minutes. He wanted to remind me who was in charge at this corner. Now, an interesting thing happened while I was standing there that was a gift from God. A 20-ton truck was coming down the road. And it was moving along, and he just put his hand up with his white glove, and he blew his whistle, and that truck came to a halt. Who's more powerful in that encounter? Truck. I would take the truck in a wrestling match any day. But why does the truck stop? Because of the authority of his badge. True authority that is backed by a kingdom is greater than any power that comes against it. And when we operate in the authority that God has given us, 
It is greater than any power that comes against us. All we have to do is raise our hands. We don't have to become more powerful and be up onesmans against the power of this world. We just simply need to say, in Jesus' name, that's enough. Because we're doing it with spiritual authority. Jesus then adds, don't get excited that this is what you're doing. Be excited that your names are written in the book of life. We sang a lot of power songs this morning. It was really good worship. You don't think so? Are you, are you not allowed to talk in your churches in Canada? It was great, but if you saw, seasoned between all of the power statements were our relationship statements that were redeemed and were brought in this. See, it's not about puffing our chests and being great. It's about what God is doing in us to touch this broken world. Now, I need to do a quick biblical theology for you. How am I doing on time? We're good. Normally, this takes three hours in seminary. Okay? This little part I'm going to do right here. You can read my book later. In a couple hours, you can get it. But let me just get it for those of you who aren't going to read the book. We need to understand authority from a biblical perspective because we are pretty much distrustful of authority because of bad examples we've seen. Many of us have been abused by authority, whether political or spiritual or in the business world or even in families. Authority is not bad, but bad authority is bad. There's a distinction. So let's start with creation. When we were created, and we see in these texts in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we have all these great phrases that it was good, it was very good, we were created in the image of God, he's a creator, so we're a co-creator with him. And then these words, we're to have dominion, we're to rule, we're to subdue. Those are scary words when you're in a world of bad authority. We're to name, we're to cultivate, we're to care for. That was our original vocation as human beings. We were to rule. God is the primary ruler, we are the under ruler. That means we're simply stewarding his authority. Are you with me on that? I call that the umbrella uh, principle. I've never done this before, so if this doesn't work, they're not going to see it in the second service, but you guys are my guinea pigs. So if you want to think about God's authority, it's like a really big umbrella that's over uh, us in this earth. Everything that operates under his authority is not being arrogant authority, it's operating out of the flow of his authority. You with me? So, you and I as human beings... We have been given spiritual authority, and as long as we're in the bounds of God's authority, we are to operate with authority and to rule. It's a lot different than power. Still with me? Some of you aren't convinced, but here we go. (laughs) Chapter 3 in Genesis, there's the fall. Everything becomes broken. We know some of the results of that. Relationships are shattered, blame and shame. Oh God, this woman you gave me. Uh, it was a serpent who made me do it. All these things, there's trouble. Our work becomes difficult. But a significant thing happens theologically. We forfeit our authority to Satan. Now, whoa, 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 what what do you mean, Chuck? What does Jesus call Satan in John? The prince or the ruler of this world. What's John saying in his letter? Satan has control with power over this world. What does Paul say? Satan is the God of this age. Now, 
we need to remember this. Satan has usurped our authority, not God's authority. We don't believe in dualism, that God and Satan are toe-to-toe. Satan is a discarded angel who is in rebellion. But when he grabs authority, he's not grabbing God's authority because he can't do anything outside of God's authority. He's grabbing our authority. Are you still with me? He works through footholds in our life and strongholds. He's a parasite. Uh, Charles Kraft says he's like a rat that goes to garbage. He can only operate where there's cooperation. But there is a level of authority that he has. If you read the scriptures, you'll see the servants of God talking about several times when they tried to do things, but Satan buffeted them so they could not do it. Okay, third umbrella. We're just going to see if this works. So, here we are. We have God's authority. As long as we operate it, everything is fine. We forfeit the authority, and what... Now, it's shared authority on earth. Satan has a hand on us, though, because we gave up what God had originally given to us. Still with me? What does Jesus come to do? Well, first of all, he comes to give atonement, substitution so that we would be in relationship to the Father, but there's an aspect of atonement that's called Christus Victoris, where he came to destroy the works of the devil. In fact, that's what John says in 1 John 5, he said, or 1 John 3, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And how does he do that? He does that by retaking spiritual authority. Just follow me for a moment. Throughout Jesus' ministry, people are amazed at all the things that he does. Because he's not with original sin like us, he was tempted like us, but without sin, he is not operating in the same authority structure. But when Jesus does things, people keep saying, who is this that has such authority? They don't say, who is this that has such power? They don't say dunamoth. They say, who is this that has such exousia? He teaches. They go, he's not like the other rabbis. He has an authority in his teaching. When he heals someone, they acknowledge that there's an authority in him that's greater than any authority that they've ever seen. When he casts out demons, they say, who is this that has such authority that even the demons obey him? And over nature, who is this that speaks to the winds and they become still? He's remodeling for us what the original design was. And in the Christ event, it becomes more powerful with each step. So we know that he's the incarnate one. Philippians 2 says, Though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Those of you who study a lot, the kenosis. He takes his divine attributes and puts them aside and waits for the baptism of the Holy Spirit to operate in this world because he wants to give us a model of how we're supposed to do it. And he begins passing it on to his disciples. We see that in this passage. It's very clear. Then in the crucifixion, he takes it to another level. Um, This is an amazing passage to me. I've often quoted it, but I've never really stopped to think about how ludicrous it is. When Jesus nailed our sin to the cross, he made a public spectacle of our enemy triumphing over him. Isn't that kind of crazy? Think about it. Jesus is being nailed to a cross... How is that making a public spectacle and triumphing unless something's happening in the spiritual realm? I was thinking about that this morning. What if the flames were losing to 
Well, let's take the pastor's team, the Oilers. 10 to nothing. Let's actually make it more biblical. What if the flames, symbol of the Holy Spirit, were losing to the devils from New Jersey? 10 to nothing. And Daryl Sutter got up over the screen and started yelling, nah, 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 we're killing you guys. You would think he was crazy. The evidence didn't point it. Jesus was making a public spectacle of our enemy, triumphing over him because he was tilting everything back to the way it was supposed to be. He's validated in resurrection. He's just a martyr if he's not resurrected. But when he's validated, he can then say to his disciples, all the authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He never says that when he's walking before crucifixion and resurrection. He operates in authority, but he says, I'm only doing what I see the Father doing. I'm only saying what I see the Father saying. He's passing it on to them. And in the ascension, he's coronated back to that bright place where we uh, are are seated with him. He says in the scriptures that um, that same power which he worked in Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father and every dominion, power, and authority came underneath his feet. I'm going to try the umbrellas one more time. Okay, you've got God's authority. We've got messed up authority that were shared with Satan. But when Jesus comes along, he puts the matter back in our hands that we have authority to do everything against what Satan wants to do in this world. Well, what do you mean, Chuck? The restoration project, which is the fourth chapter, created good, fall, it's broken, Jesus rescues, and in the restoration, he passes on to us his authority to operate, to take care of the brokenness that's in this world. It was enough that Paul said in Ephesians 1 that he was ascended to the right hand of the Father and every dominion, power, and authority was underneath his feet. But in chapter 2, you know that great passage? We were once lost in our ways, children of wrath. We were dead spiritually, but God comes into our life. And in his great love, he loves us and he raises us. We see that union with Christ. We were crucified with him. We were buried with him. And he raised us with him and we were seated with him in the heavenlies. Come on, you guys are intelligent people. You get the grammar. We would expect Paul to say, one day we're going to be seated with him, right? He says, we were seated. He's talking about our spiritual position. That means every dominion, power, and authority is underneath our feet. What's my so what this morning? God wants us to rule in his way. That which we in pride gave up at creation, Jesus has now turned to us, and it's not pride to operate in spiritual authority. If we do it in Jesus' way, it would be pride to resist the authority that he's given us. It would be like saying, everything you did, Jesus, wasn't worth it. Because we get to address the brokenness in this world. What is spiritual authority? Spiritual authority is the God-given right of rulership rooted in the relationship with him through Christ whereby we superimpose the rules, order, and impact of his world, the kingdom of God, over our world. Uh, That's just a commercial for the book. (laughs) You know, I have people say to me, well, that was the apostolic age. I could buy that except for what Jesus said uh, in John chapter 12. He said, those who, will believe, who believe in me will do what I did and do even greater things. 
Now, most commentators spend all their time trying to define what the greater things are. We can't do things greater than Jesus. Raise people from the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons. You're not going to bypass those miracles. When we get to do those kinds of things, it's kind of equal. He's talking more about the quantity of what we're going to do rather than the quality. Because when Jesus was on this earth, he was stuck to a geographical area called Palestine. We are all over the world now. And he said we would do the things that he did. That's not just for the pastors. That's not for the spiritually elite. That's every, for everyone who's rooted in Christ and has their identity in Christ. We get to say to the broken in this, this, in this world, uh, be quiet. We are here in Jesus' name. So what's the now what? I've got two things for you. I'm all right in time, Pastor? Okay. Uh, first one is gatekeepers, and the other one is gate crashers. Gatekeepers. I call this the principle of closing the gates from the kingdom of darkness coming into the places of influence in our life. Whether they be our own lives, our family's lives, the community's life, um, our workspaces, the schools that we go to. Um, I believe there's spiritual portals all about us. The enemy of our souls trying to enter them all the time we can close those and we can open up the portals of God's blessing and his favor to flow in our life. Our union with Christ never changes, but our communion is what keeps that flow there. When I was teaching this at Alliance Theological Seminary back in the early 2000s, a student came up to me after I talked about spiritual authority and the potential of curses coming against our family, and he said, my son, who's two years old, has been waking up every night in the middle of the night for the past year just screaming in terror. And we can do nothing to comfort him. We've been to psychologists, we've been to parenting experts, everything we try, it just has wrecked our sleep. Uh, he's tormented, we can't figure out. He says, do you think that could possibly be a demonic attack? I said, I have no idea of knowing, but why not take a risk and go to his bedroom tonight when he's in bed, anoint the doors and the windows, and declare to the outside world that they're not welcome here, that this is safe place in Jesus' name. Next day, he comes back into my office at the seminary, and he goes, you're not going to believe this. He slept through the night last night. Now, that's an interesting coincidence. That's what the natural mind would say, right? I like what Archbishop William Temple says. It's amazing how many more coincidences I have in my life when I pray than when I don't pray. A couple months later, I was in Australia, and a father came to me after hearing that testimony, and he said, my son is, I think, two and a half or three years old, and he's not talking. He can't form words. It's creating frustration. Do you think it's potentially a demonic attack against our family? I said, I have no way of knowing, but what you could do is just take the risk of saying in Jesus' name that you don't want darkness in your family. He went home and did it, and I got this letter from him three weeks later. It's in the book, another commercial. The day after the seminar, we as a family prayed over and anointed our home as well as our children. We felt a leading to specifically pray over our two-and-a-half-year-old, asking the Lord to loosen his tongue, as he has not been able to communicate properly, causing much frustration, tantrums, and concern on our part. Throughout the following week, we witnessed a dramatic change in speech. He began to communicate effectively, learning new words hourly. Something we had not experienced with him up until that point. Praise God and thank you for sharing your insight and uh, your own experiences. 
crazy those are coincidences that keep happening. The gatekeeping principle. We were trying to teach this to our kids when we were living as missionaries in Mali, West Africa. There were all kinds of things that were happening around us. We could see our kids beginning to discern darkness, and so we taught them this little Caribbean ditty. Uh, shut the door, keep the devil in the night. Shut the door, keep out the devil. Everything's going to be all right. And we thought we would reinforce the theological tre- teaching behind that. Uh, one day we were at church and there was this griot. Griots are uh, people that are paid to sing blessings and curses uh, in your neighborhood. And we're in this new church plant, and this griot comes walking in. She's coming up the aisle, and she's singing, and nobody's saying anything. And so finally, I stood up in Bombada, and I said, if you're singing to the glory of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, keep singing. But if not, that's not welcome here. And she ran out of the church. After the service, I said to the elders, I I didn't mean to take your authority from you. I just see that nobody's ever trained you in this. This is what you do when people come in to try to do something against the church body. We're driving home that day. My son was about five years old, and he leans up over the seat, and he goes, hey, Dad, you kind of shut the door today, didn't you? (laughs) See, even kids can understand this. Remember, the religious elite and the teachers didn't understand Jesus' authority, but demons did. In fact, they said, have you come here to destroy us? The very thing John said that Jesus came to do was to destroy the works of uh, of the enemy of our soul. And Gentiles, a centurion, understood it. He says, I'm a man of authority who has authority. You can go out of it. The second part, I'm running out of time. You are gate crashers. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against that. Every time I've heard that preached, people say, see, you're safe. The gates are locked against you. The gates of hell don't save us. They're there keeping people in bondage. We crash through those gates. We go in Jesus' name. We announce that the kingdom of God is here. Not in arrogant ways, not in triumphalism, but with assurance and in servanthood and caring for people's needs. We push back the darkness so the light can come shining in. We can't do the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the only one that changes hearts, but we set the table for the Spirit to come flooding in and change the climate where we live. We had a girl at our church in Stanwich in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. She went on one of those world mission things where they go to a different country each month for nine months. I'm not a big fan of them, but this really worked for her. She went to Cape Town, and she was really feeling like God was going to begin releasing healing in a fresh way through her ministry. There was a teaching on healing that day. She was all pumped up, and she went out into the uh, student center, and a young woman came in with her legs bent and on uh, crutches. So she did all the nice things and became careful. And she said, I don't know what you believe about God, but I believe Jesus can heal your legs. Can I pray for you? And the woman said, yes, please pray. Nothing happened. Uh, Carol, Caroline left. She went back to the uh, center where she was trained, and the trainer was still there. And he saw the look on her face and said, what's wrong? And she said, I went, and I thought this was the day that God was going to heal, and nothing happened. He said, well, tell me what happened. She explained it, and he said, did you tell her to get up? She goes, I didn't know, was I supposed to do that? He says, go back and see if you can find her and tell her to get up. She ran back to that youth center, found her and said, I forgot to tell you, I prayed for you, but in Jesus' name, get up. And the girl got up and her legs were healed immediately. She left without the crutches. 
See, there's a difference between fearful prayer and authoritative prayer and declaration. Huge difference. And it's not arrogant on our part because Jesus gave it back to us. He modeled it and said, walk in this. I can tell you about my friend David from Greenwich who worked on Wall Street, who would do prayer walks on the trading floor and around his trading desk. He led people to Christ in that secular place where you're not allowed to talk about Jesus. He did deliverance on the trading floor and he prayed for people to be healed on the trading floor. I can tell you teachers that changed the climate of their classroom when they began operating in their spiritual authority. I can tell you of a steam fitter who changed his work crew because he learned how to be someone that moves not just kind of begging God, but moving in the authority that Jesus had given back to him. If you are in Christ, you have that authority. Uh, invite the praise team up, and there's a prayer teams, I believe, if you want to meet with God before I go into my last illustration. So how do you do it? You just need to start swiping your authority card. When we got here the other day, Donna met us, and the church gave us this really nice preloaded Visa debit card to care for our meals and some of our expenses while we were here. It was a very kind gesture. This is the first church that's done this for us. Well done, Pastor. <laughs> but it's pretty cool um, when you get one of these, they're only useful when you take them to a place and you swipe them. I could have kept this in my pocket all week and took it home to show everybody how wonderful you are as a church, but it wouldn't have done anything for me. Spiritual authority is like that. You need to exercise it and God will keep releasing it to the next level. It begins in simple challenges, and then he will bring larger ones that come along, and pretty soon you're going to see the kingdom of God breaking through. Now, here's the thing that stinks about this card. It's almost empty. <laughs> Every time I swipe it, the balance keeps going down. Here's the cool thing about the kingdom of God. Every time you swipe your authority card, the balance goes up. People, be dangerous to the kingdom of God this week. Or, be dangerous to the kingdom of darkness this week. <laughs> Yee. You go out into this world with Jesus' authority. Amen.